the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. But whatever the right view is certainly important because it affects how we even define who's in and out of the church. This discontinuity is smuggled in under the garb of continuity. Wait a second, we have here something that doesn't seem to be operating according to the principles of Genesis 17.9. In a culture as politically polarized and aggressively tribalized as ours, how do people change their minds? I'm Georgie Borman, a mother, author, and cultural commentator. I want to know what we can learn from people who've been on both sides of contentious issues, whether they end up on the right or the left. That's what this podcast is about. Welcome to the 180 Cast. And so this category that's come into being, those who believe in their children, is a new thing. Hi, welcome back to the 180 Cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This is the podcast where we uncover how people change their minds. I have been hinting for a while now that the podcast would start doing more explicitly faith-related subjects. Um, as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, I am a believer, I am a Christian. And in the middle of a, a world like worldwide crisis, such as we find ourselves in with all of these people at home, including myself, sort of shut off from the normal hustle and bustle that keeps our brains just churning on those day-to-day, moment-to-moment tasks, we are left with uh, some time on our hands, a lot of us anyway, thinking about the, the deeper things in life hopefully thinking about the spiritual things in life and deepening our faith. And I figured there is no better time to dig into some doctrinal 180s. So this is one of very few subjects that I can honestly say I have not truly made my mind up about. And it bothers me. So I'm so glad that uh, I could do this podcast today because hopefully this will, you know, help me tip me in one direction or another. But in any case, it's a very polarizing subject. I mean, baptism is uh, super divisive. In the early days of the Reformation, the Anabaptists, who believed that believers, you know, needed to be baptized upon their confession of faith, even if they had already been baptized as infants, they were relentlessly persecuted But from both Protestants and Catholics alike. I mean, they were thrown into dungeons and executed even, martyred, um, But today, most mainline evangelicals have, or any non-denominational Christians especially, don't really have that much of a concept of infant baptism except as a doctrine to sort of be scoffed at and immediately disregarded because it doesn't make sense to them, um, especially according to their traditions. But uh, Reformed Baptists, Presbyterians, on the other hand, adhere to infant baptism as a key doctrine and something with roots that stretch all the way back to at least Augustine in, um, or Augustine, depending on how you pronounce it in, uh, the, the fourth century and the century. And the, the truth is there's no, there's no explicit teaching of either 
infant baptism or strictly confessional baptism in the Bible that says thou shalt only baptize people who have made a profession of faith. So what do we what do we do? How do we infer from scripture? How do we uh, give any weight, if any, to tradition and how long the church has been uh, practicing infant baptism? My my next guest has a 180 on the subject to share that will hopefully answer some of our questions. He is the author of Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future, which focuses on particular doctrines neglected um, and neglected theologians to show how evangelicals can draw from the past to meet the challenges of the present, as well as Anselm's pursuit of joy and retrieving Augustine's doctrine of creation. He holds a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary and serves as senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. Gavin Ortland, thank you for coming on the 180 cast today. Hey, great to be with you. Okay, before we get started, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to stay updated. And if you are interested in following my commentary and analysis on news, politics, and culture, you can find that at The Breakdown with Georgie Borman. Just search Georgie Borman in whatever podcast catcher you are listening to, and it will pop up. Subscribe to that. I release episodes for that every Tuesday. This episode, I mean, this podcast is every other Friday. And uh, before we get into questions, I want to let you know that the 180 cast is very proud to support the work of Christian Solidarity International and freeing slaves in South Sudan. I will tell you a little bit more about that later on. Okay, Gavin, why is this topic important? Because if baptism in itself isn't salvific, then what exactly are we so concerned about and why do people make such a big deal out of arguing about this till the cows come home? Like, at the end of the day, what matters is bringing up our children in the Christian faith, right? So why does this topic of infant baptism matter? Well, there are some Christians who do regard it as salvific, of course. I mean, in fact, probably the majority of, of Christendom does regard baptism as, in some sense, salvific. Uh, that's the view of the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, many Protestant traditions as well. I myself, sometimes we talk about uh, theological triage, which is just a, a metaphor for sort of ranking different doctrines and having priorities in our theology. I don't see baptism as a first-rank issue. It's certainly possible to overemphasize this and make it a sort of litmus test of if someone is a, a faithful Christian or something like that. And I also don't see baptism as salvific in and of itself. Um, but I, I do think it matters. I do think it is important. W one of the reasons is that it goes back to Jesus himself. It's something that Jesus instituted. And so our reverence and our love for Jesus wants, uh, makes us want to take it seriously. But the more practical reason I think it matters has to do with its consequence in the church. Because baptism is one of the sacraments of the church. And in particular, it's one of the ways the church kind of has uh, boundaries around the church membership. And so people who believe in infant baptism or pedobaptism um, will see the children of believers as from birth members of the church in some sense. So whatever the right view is there, it's certainly important because it affects how we even define who's in and out of the church. Right. So you used to be a pedo-baptist. Can you take me back to that mindset and why you believed <clears throat> what you believed? Like, what were you taught growing up in, in the church, and what did you hear about the other side, so to speak? 
Okay. Um, well, I was raised in uh, Pido Baptist contexts. I went to mostly uh, Presbyterian churches growing up, up through my college years, and then I went to a Presbyterian seminary for my um, master's degree. And I think, I mean, the the, the boundaries between Pido Baptists and Credo Baptists are pretty uh, porous. So, I mean, I, I think even for a few years when I was very young, we did a, attend a Credo Baptist church, an evangelical free church. But um, I hadn't gotten to an extremely detailed conviction about it. And, and then I started studying it when I was a senior in college. Um, at that time, I was planning to go to seminary, and I felt called to the ministry. And so at that point, it became very practical because it is an issue that can determine where you can be ordained um, and where you can serve as a pastor. Obviously, if, you're, if you don't believe in infant baptism, then you're not going to be performing infant baptisms. And so at that point, I realized I needed to study this more deeply, and I needed to think it through and make sure I understand what my convictions are. So I launched into a kind of an exhaustive study that last semester of college and then my whole first year of seminary reading lots of books, meeting with professors. It came up in class a fair amount, actually. And um, never at, in any point then, before, or after was this a hugely emotional issue for me. It wasn't as though there was any sort of animosity towards the other side or even a, a thought of that. But it was just a theological issue. I was just wrestling with what do I think the Scripture teaches? What do I think is the truth about this topic? And over the course of, of that year and a half, I became more solidified into the credo-Baptist view, which is just the view that um, those who profess faith, those who make a credible profession of faith, are the proper subjects of baptism. Um, mm-hmm. So the mindset before that was, I think, to be honest, because I hadn't given as deep a study, <clears throat> there was some confusion, and I had questions, but... I did understand a little bit of the rationale, and the rationale largely comes from the precedent of circumcision throughout the Old Testament and the claim that there's a continuity from that practice to baptism today. And baptism is sort of replacing circumcision and the role that uh, that rite played. Yeah, so first of all, does your family still hold the same—are they still pedo-baptists, or— like, how did that interaction go? Like, did wh- was that did that cause any tension at all, or was it more like, okay, well, you've come to your conclusion, we have ours? There was no tension. Um, I talked it through with my dad, and then it's honestly, to tell the truth, it hasn't come up a lot since mm-hmm. then. It's just not the kind of thing we sit around and talk about. <laughs> right. But, um, it, it once or twice it, it has come up. I think, in terms of my family, I think. Among my siblings, there's, I think there are different views. Um, my dad is still a Pido-Baptist, although his church practices what's called dual practice, which means they'll, they will do uh, believer's baptism or infant baptism, depending upon the wishes and convictions of the, the, the family in question. Um, so that's an interesting practice. Um, yeah, but we, it, there was no tension. In fact... My dad, when he knew I was wrestling with this, um, he sent me an article by Charles Spurgeon, mm-hmm. who was the great Baptist preacher in London uh, in the 19th century. And uh, he was, the article was about Spurgeon's transition of the same kind. 
And my dad's intent with that was to sort of encourage me. So it, that goes back to the point of this not being a first rank doctrine. And that's really actually what I believe. I think Christians can talk about this with a smile on our face and with a glad acceptance of the other person as a brother or sister in Christ and so forth. Um, so it, it, it matters, but it, it's not a personal issue for me. It never has been. Mm -hmm. So going back to what you said about circumcision in the Old Testament, how do you address the argument that baptism is a continuation of that mark of the covenant between God and his people? Because um, that seems like the strongest... And honest, to be honest, I still have not made up my mind on this subject. So, <laughs> like, that seems to be the, the strongest thing that, that the Pado-Baptist position has going for it. So when you were really digging into this and talking to professors and studying and things like that, did you come across anything specifically where you were like, aha, okay, so I, I can just push that argument sort of aside because, you know, there's, there's something wrong with it? Yes, there was one particular insight for me that was determinative for the whole issue. Um, and I've actually extended my thoughts about that, this insight into an article. And it's going to be coming out in a theological journal called Themelios. I think it's coming out this summer, sometime July or August, something like that. Um, basically, my here's what happened with me in my thinking. Um, many Baptists and other credo-baptists, uh, respond to the appeal to circumcision by saying, well, there's really not total continuity. Yeah, there's some, maybe some continuity between circumcision and baptism, but there's also discontinuity. And I actually do agree with that, depending upon how we cash that out. But what the insight that was significant for me was, and I know this might annoy some of the Pido-Baptist <laughs> listeners, but I, I need to say it as clear as I can, is um, I came to the view that even if baptism was a continuation of circumcision, what is practiced today as pedo-baptism wouldn't amount to the same practice. It wouldn't be continuous. And what I am referring to there is this. Uh, circumcision, as I see it, was given intergenerationally to all of the offspring of Abraham throughout the generations. So in Genesis 17, when circumcision is instituted, God says to Abraham, this is a sign of the covenant that we have, um, and it is for you and your seed after you for the generations to come. And that word seed um, is the word Zerah. That can be translated as offspring or descendants. And twice there in that, uh, once in that verse, once a few verses later, it references the generations to come. And then you, you see that throughout the Old Testament. There, there's no sense of mom, mom or dad profess faith. And then their child has a right to circumcision. The, the uh, consistent practice is that circumcision is a national boundary marker. And some people can certainly be excommunicated from the nation and people can be grafted in. But it rumbles on generation to generation. There's huge swaths of the Old Testament where people are not professing faith. They're running away. They're, they're not following the, the true God. They're following some other deity. And yet circumcision just continues going on. And Baptism, as practiced today, is for those who believe and their children, one generation. So the title of the article coming out is called Why Not Grandchildren? And it's trying to draw attention to this discontinuity 
that is smuggled in in under the garb of continuity and saying, wait a second, this isn't the same. Uh, this is a totally new system. Um, this is a system in which we have uh, moms and dads and children's families, and that's different from a nation of Abraham. And perhaps one could argue uh, from one to the other. That, that, that's reasonable. But it certainly isn't enough to say, well, we're continuing the practice of circumcision, therefore we're doing this, because it's not a continuation of that practice. This is a new practice in which families become the boundary markers of covenant membership. So how did baptism fall into that connection with circumcision? Was it, I mean, is that just like a natural leap that our earlier church fathers thought about it like what what is it about baptism is it just the lack of any other sign mm-hmm. that baptism sort of fell into that position of oh well this is the this is the mark of what makes you part of the you know member of god's family like the children right. of god right um yeah you, i think you're right to to draw attention to that because there isn't any explicit statement in the new Testament that um, baptism is the replacement of circumcision. I think it is a reasonable inference from the nature of both rites as a sort of entry into the covenant community. And there are some passages that could imply that connection. There's a a passage in Colossians two, for example, that, uh, seems to associate in some way baptism and circumcision, although many have argued, and I think rightly, that the circumcision that's in view there is spiritual circumcision, that is circumcision of the heart. Nonetheless, um, there is, I think, a plausible correlation that can be made just from the nature of the rites, but that's not explicit anywhere that I'm aware of. Right. So, Tell me more about this argument about why not grandchildren? Why why not grandchildren? Okay. So um, the, the basic insight is to say that um, as we move throughout the biblical covenants, there is both continuity and discontinuity. Um, move from circumcision to baptism, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there are changes that take place. And what I have proposed is that um, circumcision was a sign most explicitly of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what it's, that is how it is introduced to Abraham in Genesis 17. He makes a covenant with Abraham and says, hey, this is the sign of the covenant. And that covenant, and the, the strength of the Pido-Baptist argument turns on seeing the Abrahamic covenant as not just, you know, for the dispensation in which Abraham lived, but as continuing all throughout history being fulfilled by Jesus. So um, this is sometimes called covenant theology as opposed to dispensationalism. And the idea is that these different covenants are not, one is not replacing uh, the other, but it's emphasizing continuity between them. And so the new covenant is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. And a lot of the, the Baptist arguments against infant baptism are pushing against covenant theology and emphasizing dispensationalism. But my argument is actually based upon covenant theology. And it's saying, yeah, even on the grounds of of continuity, what we have here is a different practice. What we have here is something that uh, doesn't seem to be operating according to the principles of Genesis 17.9. So the subjects who are the intended recipients of this 
ritual, circumcision, are not those who believe in their children. And so this category that has come into being, those who believe in their children, is a new thing. And what might be fun for us to talk about is also um, just the historical record on this, because interestingly, a lot of the older Pito-Baptists in the Reformed tradition did affirm intergenerational baptism. So uh, to me, to my mind, that actually strengthens the, uh, the case that I'm trying to make. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, because Pedro-Baptists have for, you know, they've got like thousands of years of tradition on their side. And how can you argue with that? Especially if, especially if they were doing intergenerational baptism. I mean, did you find, have you found anything in particular about like the rationale for why they were baptized, you know, baptizing grandchildren? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's either because they're their parents are non-believers or because their parents passed away. Like, I mean, what is even, what's the rationale for that? Uh-huh. Okay. So this was the most surprising thing to me in my research. Um, in the context of uh, coming up with this insight th- that um, I convinced me of my, of for a different view, I discovered I wasn't the first person to think in this way. In fact, a lot of the early Pido-Baptists in the Reformed tradition um, did affirm the practice of intergenerational baptism. So there was a, a letter written from one of the reformers in Scotland named John Knox to uh, John Calvin and the other reformed leaders in the city of Geneva where Calvin was. And he was asking, what do we do about those whose parents are ungodly, but they're, uh, but they still desire them to be baptized. So they're, the parents have never made a profession of faith, and yet, because you live in this church-state context where the church and the state are interwoven, um, mom and dad still present the child to baptism and because you, you've got a national church. And Calvin, the response was, they still have the right to baptism, the, the grandchild of a believer, the child of the unbeliever. And he his argument was exactly uh, what I have uh, noticed, and that is, if we're arguing from continuity with circumcision, why not do it intergenerationally? What would abrogate the right of a, a later person in the chain of influence from one generation to another? And then Calvin's response to Knox became the dominant reformed view. It was advocated by other early uh, leaders in the reformed tradition, and the discussion kept on going into the Westminster Assembly in the 17th century, and Samuel Rutherford and others were arguing for the same view, this intergenerational view of baptism, and the discussion came to be focused on what they called adherence. Um, so these would be people who uh, have not professed faith, but they are still within the, the national church. Are their children eligible for baptism? The majority view was yes, and then it played out into the American context with the so-called halfway covenant. And basically, up until then, the dominant view was in favor of intergenerational baptism. Only since that time, since the 18th century, has it become more common to just baptize those who believe in their children one generation. And what I take from all of that is just to say, this whole idea of why not grandchildren is not a crazy question. You know, the the biggest names in the Reformed tradition for over, for hundreds of years 
had the same question. Well, why wouldn't we baptize the grandchildren too? If the children, why not the grandchildren? And so I think that kind of furthers the concerns that I'm uh, drawing out in my article. So this was more a, in America, this was for a little while, basically a relic or an artifact of the fact that the church and state were interwoven in Europe. And so it, it made sense if you're part of a national church, like everybody in that nation has a right to baptize their kids. But so is that what sort of unraveled it once it got to America? Because then you have separation of church and state. Is that why? I know we're like getting into the weeds, but I think this is a really interesting right. question. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Yeah. I can't say with 100% confidence as to the why, because that's a tough question, but I can just observe that circumstantially that seems to have been how it played out. So it, the um, those who lived, those who affirmed a national church tended to affirm the intergenerational view more. And then those who affirmed a church-state uh, disconnect tended not to. And so... Um, some of the independents uh, were more in in Great Britain were more uh, 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 proponent proponents of the single generation view, and then certainly yes, as you get into the American context, the intergenerational view starts to lose its uh, its popularity. So I think that's plausible as a reason for why that may be the case. So why not grandchildren? That's this is the the chink in the armor. How exact, exactly? I'm trying to connect the dots as far mm. as you know how that reveals the illogical nature of the pedo Baptist argument. Uh -huh. Okay, so the, the the basic idea is this: that we're being asked to accept a practice on the grounds of this is a continuation of a previous practice, and so the the concern is. Well, if it's not a continuation of that previous practice, then we need some rationale for this new practice. It's sort of as though someone says, because I've heard, I've had people say to me in response, well, what's the big deal? I mean, who cares if it was intergenerational in the Old Testament? It's not intergenerational now. But the whole appeal is based upon continuity. So it's sort of, it feels, I've used the metaphor sometimes of you're being asked to cross a bridge. And then you say, well, but the bridge is going to fall. It's not sturdy. And then someone says, well, what's the big deal? <laughs> and then it's kind of like, well, it's pretty important. You know, that's what the bridge is there to do. And so what we're, what we're all after here is this question. Who are the proper subjects of Christian baptism? Who are the people? And the, the argument for, from the Pido-Baptist side, at least the Reformed or Covenantal argument, is it's the same as the subjects of circumcision. It's a continuation of that practice. For example, one of the ways that Phytobaptism is argued for sometimes by people like B.B. Warfield and others. They say, God put his children into the church and he never took them out. So we don't have a right to take them out. And so the, the why not grandchildren argument is pushing back against that by saying, but these are different children. Uh, the one is the children of Abraham. That is intergenerational, uh, an intergenerational and national body. The other is the children of believers. That is families. And so the, the argument is you're claiming continuity, but it's actually discontinuity. So what do you do then 
it's going back to, you know, more of the conventional understanding of infant baptism where it's the the parents and their kids. What do you do with all the the he and his he and all his household passages, right? Like in Act Act 16, um you've got a a family that everybody was baptized at once, he and all his family and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So like, what do you do with those passages then? Because that's, you know, typically referred to or leaned on as a proof text for pedo-baptism. That it's like, well, they all got baptized. Are you really going to say that none of these families had small, very small children or, or infants that were, you know, too young to be at that age of capable of understanding? Hmm. Yeah, th- th- I think this is the best part of the Pido Baptist argument. And if there's times where I question my view and I'm open to considering the alternative, it's in relation to this point, the uh, household baptisms. But there's a couple things that um, persuade me not to to see this point as decisive. The main thing is that in almost all the show, by my reckoning, there's five cases of household baptisms here. And I probably won't be able to remember all of them because it's, uh, I haven't thought about this in several months and it's right after lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But um, in all but one, we have indications either explicit or implicit that the entire household believed. So for example, one of them is in in Acts 18 and it's Crispus, his household, household of Crispus. Well, it says, it says explicitly his household believed. Everyone in his household believed the gospel. Now, in other cases, it's just implicit. So in Acts 16, you have the two examples. One is the Philippian jailer. One is Lydia, her household. Philippian jailer, it says that they, Paul and his associate preached the gospel to everyone in the household. And then it says everyone in the household rejoiced that salvation had come to them. It says the Philippian jailer rejoiced that salvation had come and his household rejoiced with him. Right. So it doesn't explicitly say they believe, but I think it implies that because it's hard to think of people not responding to the gospel, but rejoicing that the gospel has come to them. Um, The household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1 and 16 is another example. And in chapter 1, we're told the household is baptized. In chapter 16, we're told the household was the first converts in Achaia. And so the the thing that gives pause, I think, to the Pido-Baptist appeal to these passages is in a non-individualistic culture, be very rare for the whole household not to convert at once. Or I, I should say much rarer than it is in our context, where today it's kind of like everyone choose their own religion. That think, thinking is more common in, our, in the modern West. But in the first century, you'd have, and interestingly, even with Jesus's miracles, there's so many times where the entire household will respond with belief, there's an example of that in John five, where the uh, the royal official uh, connects the dots that the uh, of the timing of a healing that has occurred and when Jesus said it, and it says he believed because of that, and his household with him believed. And so I think this is what sometimes you see in ministry is a whole family will come to Christ together. So I now the most difficult one is Lydia because they were just not told one way or the other, about what happened with her household. Did they believe? Did they not? We don't even know a lot of the order of events there. But I would basically say, I don't think the household baptisms are kind of conclusive for any view. Um, but I do think they're, they, uh, 
taking them as a whole, it looks to me like it's it's best to kind of go, take them in the way we take all the other instances of baptism and acts, rather than see them as an exception, because um, uh, it looks like the household is converting in all of the examples, except for one, Lydia, and in that one, we just were told so little about it. So I, I see those as um, a plausible piece of Pyto-Baptist argumentation, but I don't see them as conclusive uh, for those reasons. Okay. So I want to go back to something I touched on a little bit earlier, though, as far as the, the tradition, because Pyto-Baptism has been the tradition for thousands of years, and one might venture to ask, how could all of those people be wrong? Um, because, you know, I, if only to ask this question, because it, it has parallels to other things that Christians don't really question, like proponents for traditional marriage, you know, natural marriage between a man and a woman make the same argue, argument from tradition. And they say, um, yeah, okay, you, you've got this novel interpretation of biblical passages here, but you're way out in left field because look at all of these church fathers, just reams and reams and reams of manuscripts, just acknowledging that this is what marriage is and not giving any credence to anything else. And most Bible-believing Christians just sort of not in agreement with that, but it doesn't work on this subject yeah. Well, this is a point that I would say two things. The first is this is an, an argument or a concern or a point that I, I don't have a great response to because I feel the weight of it. I mean, I really, um, it's a significant consideration that the vast majority of Christendom today and throughout space and time has been on the Pyto-Baptist side. And that's a, that's a significant fact. There are debates in, about, um, when exactly Pyto-Baptism started. Obviously, Pyto-Baptists think it started in the New Testament. Credo-Baptists sometimes say late 2nd century. That's how uh, one, one Credo-Baptist has argued, for example. So, But anyway, you slice it, it's the minority view. Now, one of the things that I do think, though, secondly, kind of takes the steam out of that concern is that there's such different kinds of Pyto-Baptism. And when the Reformed tradition came along in, in, in the context of the Protestant Reformation, they were saying that the early church and medieval church had also gotten baptism wrong because their reason for baptizing infants was different. And one of the Reformers, Zwingli, said basically the entire church has gotten baptism wrong because they were baptizing infants w with a view to uh, what's called baptismal regeneration, which means which does assign a, a saving efficacy to baptism. And, and so the Pyto-Baptists were saying, that's wrong. We need to have, so although there was Pyto-Baptism, it was a different kind of Pyto-Baptism, and that, I think, mitigates the appeal there to the historical view a bit. Um, and then I would simply say that there's other examples of things where um, the church, you know, practice the, the role of bishops, certain understandings of the Lord's Supper. There's, there's various other issues that are no less difficult for many Protestants today where we are in the minority uh, with regard to the church history. So this isn't a, the only example of where we have to face 
a difficult fact of really, honestly, any way you go. And this is one of the reasons why in this conversation, it's so helpful to start where we started saying this isn't a first rank thing. Any way we go, we're disagreeing with a lot of godly smart people. Uh, any anything we choose, we're going to be opposing s- some significant traditions of Christian thought and practice. So that should probably humble us before the weight of this question. Yeah. So it's not it's being oversimplified, basically. Like history is a lot more messy than the way that we make it out sometimes. I think that's right. Well, now is a good time to let you, the listener, know about a really important opportunity that you have. You may have never heard of Christian Solidarity International, but the work of this small team is literally setting captives free. Since 1995, CSI has freed over 100,000 people from slavery in Sudan, literal slavery, bringing them home to their families and communities and helping them start new lives as free individuals. Adat was 20 years old with an infant when one of the slave retrievers from CSI found her and set her free. She had been separated from her parents as a child, and they were also taken into slavery by Arabs in Sudan. She was made to work incredibly long hours every day in dangerous conditions. She was beaten by her masters, forced to convert to Islam. But CSI helped exchange a cattle vaccine to her master in exchange for her freedom and brought her and her child by foot all the way back to South Sudan safely. They equipped her with all of the essentials that she would need to start a new life as a free person. That's the kind of work that CSI does, and that is the kind of work that needs your support. It is the only organization right now that is freeing South Sudanese from slavery, and they need your help to free thousands more during this upcoming year. What your dollars do is incredible. Give what you can afford and what the spirit leads you to give, but let me tell you what $250 would buy. It buys freedom in exchange for a cattle vaccine called Novidium, which is very coveted by these slave masters who have cattle. It buys the Bag of Hope, which is a survival kit to meet immediate physical needs, tarps, shelter, hand tools. It buys a goat for future dairy production to sell and eat, a year's worth of sorghum, which is a really hardy, drought-resistant grain for food, seeds, tools for planting, and and they also need your help for, for funding for medical supplies and food for their clinics, especially in light of COVID-19. It's really important that they have all of the supplies that they need on hand to make sure that these people coming out of slavery um, have their physical health as well. These people do amazing work. They have very little overhead. Your money literally helps buy somebody's freedom. That is a rare opportunity. They really show the love of Christ to these individuals who have been through the worst kinds of things you could possibly imagine in this life. $250 buys all of that for one of these people coming out of slavery. If you want to give, please call 888-342-1010 to give the gift of freedom and hope. 888-342-1010. And I will list that number in the episode description. Okay, back to it. What is, in your opinion, the biggest thing or things that are holding people back from 
embracing your position? Is it sort of like the inertia of tradition or is it, you know, the idea that this is a continuation from circumcision and how do you address that? Well, I'm not losing any sleep worrying about, oh no, why aren't people moving to the Credo Baptist side? Um, and I don't know that I would even be able to identify one cause. I do personally, I see the issue as sufficiently complicated such that intelligent people can come to different conclusions. And so I don't just see there being like one holdup. Like if only people could get this one thing, then it would all clear up. I see it as uh, probably lots of different things for different people. And I, but you know, if there is one thing to identify that would be true of both sides, Pedobaptist and Credobaptist, it's probably there is a lot of apathy about doctrines that are not perceived to be immediately relevant. And some people, there are a lot of people who, and this is something I've written about recently and I care a great deal about. We just tend to go to the extremes with doctrine where either we say, either we're just, we're like fundamentalists fighting about everything, you know, or we just say, ah, what does it really matter? And we don't think about it. And so that, what I call doctrinal minimalism and apathy may be a factor, not just for on one side, though. I think that's probably a factor on, on both sides. Yeah. So what's your, your elevator pitch, though, if you get to talking to somebody about this and they do really care about this issue? It obviously is important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, let's say you're you're in an elevator that's exceptionally large because you have to stay six feet apart nowadays. Um, <laughs> and uh, you're, you're, you're talking, you get to talking about this. What do you, what do you say that per to that person to kind of get them thinking uh, along your track as in term, like, as opposed to the way that they were thinking before? Well, I, okay. So I'll do the elevator speech here. Oh, this is a good thing to do briefly. Cause I, uh, and I know, you know, I have uh, about eight minutes here before my next podcast, yeah. but um, I would say briefly um, that we need to look to scripture to answer this question. Who are the proper subjects of Christian baptism? The, uh, what baptism symbolizes is our union with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection. And secondarily, the washing away of our sins, our forgiveness of sins. These are blessings associated with the gospel that we receive by faith and repentance. If we are going to administer baptism to those who have not personally appropriated the gospel, we need a, a good rationale to do so. And the rationale that we're just continuing the practice of circumcision doesn't seem to be uh, a compelling rationale to my mind because of what we have been saying throughout this discussion, that it doesn't seem like it is a continuation of circumcision. So um, that would be the, the brief appeal I would make. Gavin, thank you for joining me today. Um, I do think that this is a really solid conversation that I hope and pray will, will get people thinking more seriously about this issue. Theology matters. That is something that I try to, to underscore in my writing and, and here on the podcast. So thank you for helping me with that. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. You can follow Gavin on Twitter at Gavin Ortland. That's O-R-T-L-U-N-D. And find his books on Amazon, Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, and Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. So please go check those out. You can call and leave a 
and leave a voicemail or text the flip phone at 323-999-1802 where you can flip out on me and try to flip my position Although you can't flip my position on this because I haven't decided. Or tell me about your flip-flop. 323-999-1802. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at 180cast. Please give the podcast a review on Apple Podcasts if you like it so that more people know that this is a podcast worth listening to and having important, fascinating conversations. You can follow me at Georgie underscore Borman where I speak my mind on a variety of topics from a Christian conservative worldview. Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am and what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see Who I am and what I need, Executive producer, Kevin Nicola. Music by Reefy Craft. Who I am and what I need, who I've got In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got to be.